Uh, turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, uh, as we continue our, our series in Genesis, we'll begin in verse 18. Again, let me ask that you stand as we read God's Word together. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this, is, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's Word stands forever. Let's pray together. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that You would be at work in us through this, Your Word. Teach us, change us, Inform us more and more into the image of Christ. Encourage and equip us as you promise your word does. Through Christ we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you've um, watched the Santa Claus movies, the ones with. Tim Allen. They're a staple in our house. They're a sort of a regular event for us at Christmas time. Uh, the Santa Claus movies are predicated on, I mean, they're based, they're based on, they're built on the fact that Claus, Santa's last name, and Claus, a line in a contract, sound alike. I think, I think they may even have the E in a parenthesis on at least one or two of the uh, titles or something. But there's a, a scene in the second one, the, the, there's the Santa Claus, and then the second one is the Mrs. Claus. Uh, so there's the, the scene in the second one where uh, Bernard the head elf and his number two in charge are revealing to Santa this long lost secret, even though it's printed uh, less than clearly on the Santa Claus business card that you that Santa had to be married. He had to have a Mrs. Claus. And there's a scene where they're revealing it to him and they roll in this contraption. And the contraption is, it's a series of gradually larger and stronger, more powerful magnifying glasses. 
He lifts up the first one. The cards at the end of this machine, he lifts up the first one and Santa's like, I can't see anything. Puts that one down and raises another one till he gets to the last one. It's this big, mammoth, giant magnifying glass. And you can finally make out the fine print that Santa Claus has to get married. He has to have a Mrs. Claus. This passage is like one of those magnifying glasses. Day six is at the end of this machine and you raise up the magnifying glass and you zoom in on day six of creation. It's as if this passage sort of unpacks for us more clearly what happens after Genesis 1.26 when God says, let us make man in our image. We've zoomed in on day six to see what's happening there. Because here's the thing. One of the things you notice is this is the first time something is not good. The refrain over and over again in Genesis 1 at the end of every day, and it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. Somehow or another, Genesis 2 in verse 18, something is not good. Creation is not yet as it should be. It's not yet as God designed it. It's not yet as God is going to make it. It's not yet as God wants it to be. That that clues us into the fact that Genesis 2 and Genesis 1, we said this last week, are not contradictory creation accounts. In many ways, Genesis 2 magnifies for us day 6. We have animals. We have plants. We have Adam. We don't yet have... Eve. And yet, something is not good. Notice, first of all, God recognized Adam's need. This, of course, didn't surprise God. I mean, don't don't think that, that God getting to this point and somehow He's looking around going, now I see creation... And this looks pretty good. And those are good colors over there. And I've got some really cool animals. Something's missing. What have I left out? Got it. You can't... We think of this passage. We read this passage. For that matter, we read the creation account like human artists. Put something on a canvas and back up and go, ah, it needs a little more here. Ah, it's a little off-center. For an artist, in many ways, you have this idea in your head and and you're getting it out on canvas, but it sort of unfolds for you even as you paint it on the canvas. God's not surprised by what He sees at this point. God knows that He's not yet finished with His creation. He knows that, that Adam doesn't have a suitable helper for him. He knows that that it's not good yet because Eve has not yet been created. It's not like God's caught off guard by that. It's not like God recognized Adam's need because he suddenly realized, oh, I've forgotten something. I knew I forgot something. We can't approach the passage that way. There's a reason why it matters that Adam by himself in the garden is not good. 
There's a, there's a very clear reason why Adam, by himself, in the garden, is not good. Do you remember what Genesis 1.26 said about man? God said, let us make man in our image. God has always had relationships. God, has, God lives in an eternal trinity. God lives in eternal love, in eternal relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You saw that. You, you got a glimpse of that at least in Genesis 1. In verse 2, when the Spirit of God is hovering over creation before it's been kind of brought into order. We find in John 1 that, that Christ is the one that created everything, and then without Him, nothing was made that was made. We know that Father, Son, and Spirit are all involved in creation. But I want you to see something. Turn to 1 John 4. Reach all the way, almost to the end of your New Testament. In 1 John 4, we get a statement that, that quite honestly, you know well. Oddly enough, it's a statement that unbelievers know well. It's a statement that, that non-Christians, perhaps even anti-Christians, know well. In 1 John 4, verse 8, anyone who does not love God does not, anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. Here's a trick. Follow the thought for a second. God is love. God never changes, which means God has always been love. Which means He's always had love is an expression. Love flows out. Love is not selfish. That means He's always had someone to love. There's evidence even there of the fact that God has always been a trinity. That God has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's always been eternal, perfect, loving communion within the Godhead. Which means that even before sin enters the world, even before the fall, Adam by himself in the garden is not good. He can't yet reflect God's image by himself. He has no one to love. He has no way to express that Love. Man actually needs woman. Adam needed Eve. First of all, God recognized Adam's need. Second of all, the passage shows us God exposing Adam's need. Look at verses 19 and 20. God, God says, God announces, pronounces, it is not good that man should be alone. And then He parades animals before Adam so that he might give them their names. Whatever he calls them, that is what they are. I don't know how some of you got your names. For some of you, it's a family name and, and you didn't get much choice. Maybe, maybe firstborn sons, you're just kind of carrying on the family name and, and maybe even some of you wish you weren't. Maybe you'd kind of like to have something different. You, you just got the family name. It, 
doesn't really mean much. It's just you're, you're named after your dad and your granddad and your great-granddad or somebody else in your family. Maybe you found a name because you just thought it was pretty. I like this name. I think it's a cool name, and I'm going to name my child this. Over and over again in Israel's history, names matter. Names carry... It's not like they just went to, you know, common baby names and flipped through pages and found one they liked and said, let's go with that. Names actually were a much bigger deal than that in Israel. Isaac. His name means laughter. Sarah laughed when Abraham was told, I'll be back in a year and you'll have children. Sarah laughed. Isaac, his name means laughter. Jacob means supplanter or deceiver. He deceived both his brother and his father to gain the right of the firstborn, his birthright. You see the point. Names in the Old Testament carry a much bigger deal, a much bigger weight. Adam is naming these creatures. He's part psychoanalyst as he examines these animals and and gives them their names as they are paraded in front of him. But it's also true that he's reflecting his role. You remember as as we worked our way through Genesis 1, one of the things we said about man is, Man is here to be uh, God's vice regents on the earth. We're, we're exercising his kingly dominion for him on the earth. That, that's evidenced here. The, the greater names the lesser. The superior names the inferior. And that's exactly what's going on in this passage. He's, we're getting a glimpse of, oh, that's right. Adam is supposed to exercise dominion over these animals. And part of the way he does that is by naming them what they will be called. I have this vivid memory. It was, it was a very short ride up Assembly Street. I think it was Assembly Street. It could have been Gervais Street. I'm pretty sure it was Assembly Street. Growing up in Columbia, South Carolina, the ride from the train station to the Coliseum was just a eight or nine blocks. It's really not that far at all. So when the circus came to town... Everybody would line Assembly Street from the train station to the Coliseum because you could watch the cages of these animals go by as they were taken from the train station up to the Coliseum where Ringling and Barnum would do their, do their thing. I, I sort of picture this animal parade. Maybe even the elephants, elephants in the Jungle Book. They're all lined up and singing and parading through the woods. You picture this parade of animals. The next one steps up and Adam gives them a name and they march off somewhere else. And the next one in line steps up and Adam gives them... I don't know what it looked like. But you, you have in your head maybe even the parade into the ark as the animals would file in with Noah. Have you ever thought about like the random names you would have given the animals? I mean, I know some of you, I know some of I know how some of you think, and some of you would have been like, let's come up, you know, let's call this one, you know, carpet. And let's call this one, and you'd be making up weird words. Adam's standing there, and there's, you know, lion, lioness, yak, yakette, 
I don't know, whatever female for yak is. Elephant and elephant et, owl and owlet. I mean, just giving them their name. Whatever he called them, that is, that would be their name. And yet, as these animals go by, Adam has the opportunity to realize what God has already said to be true. I do this for people in pre-marriage counseling. We kind of make a big deal about the fact that God sees the need long before Adam does. And then he takes the time, you get the sense in this passage, that he takes the time to say, Adam, you have a need that you don't yet know about. Let me show you. There's Al and Owlette, and there's a male and a female yak, and you know, here's the giraffe. I don't have one of those. He comes to the realization that he's lacking a suitable helper, a a, a corresponding opposite, a helper fit for him. God recognized Adam's need. God exposed Adam's need. But notice finally that in his great love and care for his people, God met Adam's need. Look at verse 21. The Lord God put Adam to sleep. So far, Adam has really only done one thing. God has been at work the whole time. So far, from Genesis 1-1 until now, God is shown working over and over and over again. And, and Adam has done one thing, and there's an implied second thing, I suppose. The one thing he's done is name the animals. The second implied thing is perhaps he's done a little gardening in the meantime. God is the one at work. And God puts Adam to sleep. And God takes one of his ribs. And God closed the place up. And God made the woman. And God brought her to the man. Notice, let me remind you, we, 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 we pointed this out last week. It's worth noting again. The name for God used throughout this passage. It's the combination Lord God. Yahweh God. When you see Lord in your Bible, in your English Bible, in all capital letters, that's the, that's the English translator's way of saying this is Yahweh. This is God's personal covenant name. In other words, this isn't just a picture of God's sovereign authority in making things. It's also a picture of His loving care for Adam that He would make for him Eve. That he would make for him his suitable helper, his helper fit for him, his appropriate opposite. It's part of his covenant-making, covenant-keeping function to meet Adam's need in the garden. Now, Now, some of you may flinch. Some of you may even may flinch at this concept of, uh, hold on, time out. Woman has been made to be a suitable helper for man. A helper fit for him. Does that mean women are somehow second class citizens in the kingdom of God? That's nowhere in 
this passage. Is that, does that mean that, that the Bible, see I told you the Bible hated women. I told you the Bible only wants to, to keep women uh, oppressed and under their thumb. L- let me show you two reasons why that would be faulty thinking. Number one, turn with me to Psalm 33. Lest you think that Genesis 2 teaches that woman's, woman's only place is barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen, let me read Psalm 33, verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord, Yahweh. He is our help and our shield. That word help? is the exact same word used of Eve in Genesis 2. The exact same word is used to describe God in Psalm 33 that describes Eve in Genesis 2. In fact, the very first song we sang, this is why we sang it, our God, our help in ages past. Is it belittling to God to say that He's our helper? It's, it's not belittling at all. We need Him. We need His work. Which is sort of the second observation of Genesis 2. Eve is created because Adam is needy. Woman is created because man is needy. Even in his sinless state, Adam, before the fall, needed Eve. Matthew Henry, that in his great commentary, says this Eve was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be to be protected and near His heart to be beloved. God meets the need of Adam by creating Eve, a a suitable helper, a a helper that corresponds to Him. Do do we need to make the observation that, that Adam in his need, God didn't make another male? Do we need to make the observation that Adam in his need, God didn't make multiple females? Or several other creatures, or these all have implications, of course, for our view of marriage. God forms Eve out of Adam's rib and then presents her to Adam. How's that for a father walking a bride down the aisle? God is the first father of the bride, so to speak. He forms Eve, and then he walks her down the aisle to present her to Adam, verse 22. He brings her to the man. The first wedding ceremony, God gives away the bride to Adam. Up till now, Moses tells us that Adam gave names to animals. He doesn't quote any of the names. He doesn't quote anything that Adam said. He doesn't record for us any of the specifics of of Adam's language. Whatever he called them, that was its name. 
Adam named the animals, and whatever name he gave them, that's what they're called. That's, that's all we get from Moses. But when Eve shows up, Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, records for us Adam's poem. Eve is presented to Adam, and Adam breaks out into poetry. This at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You know, we we perhaps somewhat jokingly will say things like, you know, the word woman sort of means woe, man. And you can take woe multiple different directions. We half joke about our use of dude and dudette. We kind of joke that if, if you're looking for a way to feminize a word, you just put a feminine sounding end on the, uh, the regular word, and there you go, there's the feminine form of the word. That's exactly what Adam does here. It's literally man and manette. It's literally man, and then he takes the, the feminine ending and, and puts it on the end of the word. It's ish and isha, isha. It's literally man and manette. She's taken out of me. She's corresponding to me. Her, her name, she shall be called woman. Even the word woman reflects her suitable helperness for Adam. Have you ever had, you know, that dream? Have you ever sort of woken up in the middle of the night with, in a cold sweat? Because the next day you're supposed to do some presentation, you're supposed to give some report, you're supposed to do something in public, and you were dreaming about it the night before, and, and you woke up suddenly realizing that in your dream you were giving this report, and you didn't have your pants on? You didn't have your clothes on? This is one of those, that's one of those nightmares we all have at some point in our lives. We have this fear and dream that, that we, we wake up from this dream and, and we're in public and we're, we're naked. We don't have our clothes on. You know why that's our nightmare? You know why that's a, a terrible, horrible dream for us? Because, because it's embarrassing. It's shameful. Because throughout the Bible, being naked is a sign of sin and guilt. It's always a picture of sin and guilt, except here. There is no sin and guilt yet. There is no shame yet. There is no reason to feel like you have to run and hide and cover yourself up. Because there's, there's no shame, there's no guilt, there's, there's nothing for them to, to hide from or a reason for them to hide. Adam and Eve are both naked but they have no shame. Moses records that because he lives after the fall and they all know, huh, I don't want to be seen naked. I don't want people to see me. That's, that's embarrassing and scary and shameful. Part of the picture here is that in marriage, you get a, a glimpse that you can now be naked physically, spiritually, emotionally, you can be exposed to someone and have no reason for shame. It's a, a picture 
that marriage, exactly what Paul writes in Ephesians 5, that, that marriage is a, is a picture of the relationship between Christ and His bride, the church. Christ knows you. Christ knows everything about you. He knows things about you you, you don't even necessarily know, that you may not clearly understand, that you certainly wouldn't want anyone else to know about. Those things you do in secret or have done in secret, those, those secret innermost parts, Christ knows. And if you're His child, He doesn't turn you away. He loves you still. We have that pictured for us in marriage. When we're physically and spiritually and emotionally laid bare before another person who doesn't turn you away, who doesn't laugh, but who loves. It was always a, a rule in student ministry whenever you would take youth trips one of the rules was always no purpling. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't know. Technically, I've been told this may not actually be true, but in my head at least, if you mix blue paint and pink paint together, you're going to get some form of purple. And so one of the rules on youth trips was always, you know, boys don't go in girls' rooms and girls don't go in boys' rooms. No purpling. The blue people stay out of the pink rooms and the pink people stay out of the blue rooms. No purpling. There's a, a statement here in Genesis 2 that Christ reiterated in Matthew 19. If you're married, you're always purple. You're, you're no longer blue and pink. You're one flesh. You're always purple. There, there's no more two separate individual people. It's, it's one. The two become one flesh. You're always purple. That should encourage us as believers. Christ cannot and will not be separated from His bride, the church. God saw Adam's need. God exposed Adam's need. God met Adam's need. Let me just make a couple of applications from this passage. The, the first is, what's the ultimate purpose for marriage? You're tempted to say, children and infest the earth with offspring that's part of it but that nowhere comes up in this passage did you notice that here this here's this the the locus classicus the quintessential passage on marriage i start every pre-marriage counseling session right here in this passage because everything else springs from it and there's no mention of children anywhere there's more the sense that these two, Adam and Eve, that Adam alone couldn't serve and worship and obey God's commands without Eve. He couldn't submit to His Word and worship God properly, appropriately, as He's designed to do without His wife. There's a sense in which marriage's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Second, the world around us is 
attacking, this is no surprise to you, it's attacking the institution of marriage. This passage tells us if Scripture is our only rule of faith and practice, if Scripture is our sole rule of what we will believe and how we will, will live, we must defend the institution of marriage at every turn. We must take our cues not from the world around us, not from our culture, not from movies or television or Instagram. We take our views of marriage from God and His Word. And already right here, marriage is between one man and one woman and we must be prepared to uphold and defend that. Lastly, the fuller explanation would be better saved for Ephesians 5, but at least now we can point down the road. The church is Christ's bride. You, the individual, you are not the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ, and Grace Covenant is merely one expression of that true church. Christ is wholeheartedly, one-heartedly, single-mindedly committed to His one bride. That means that if you're in Christ, if your hope is in Him and in Him alone for your salvation, if, if your trust is in His person and work, then then you have the comfort and security of knowing that Christ is wholeheartedly committed to seeing you brought to the end. He's wholeheartedly, single-mindedly committed to washing you clean by His Word, that you would be presented to Him one day as a, a part of this radiant, perfect, sinless bride that He Himself died to save. You find here comfort and assurance that Christ doesn't have multiple brides, that Christ isn't going to suddenly turn His back on you and, and choose someone else. In many ways, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Christ and His bride, He's died to win and save her and keep her and preserve her until the end. Are you a member of that bride? Are you trusting in Christ and Him alone for your salvation? Are you still trusting in your own works? Are you still expecting that, that well, I've been pretty good and I don't really need Jesus. I just kind of need to do better. If that's your hope, then you should actually fear. Because Christ has not promised to be that committed to you. you. You trust in Him and in Him alone. And until you're brought to faith in Christ, you should expect that when He returns, you'll not be found with Him. But it's comforting to us as believers because we see evidence of it even set in this table before us this morning. That Christ is wholeheartedly and single-mindedly committed to the church. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for this picture of marriage and the great and wonderful institution that it is as you have designed it, even giving away the first bride to her husband. Father, we pray that you would by this your word strengthen our marriages that we would rightly and accurately and fairly reflect the relationship between Christ and His bride, the church. We pray that You would equip us for battle against a world that is opposed to Your Word and opposed to Your design for marriage. And that You would even prepare them to hear hope and comfort from this Your Word. And Father, we pray as well that You would strengthen our faith. That even as we read in Genesis 2 of earthly marriage, our minds and hearts would be drawn to that that great wedding feast when we celebrate the, the final wedding between Christ and the church. And that that would be our great joy and hope and comfort in this life as we long for the life that is to come. Through Christ we ask it. Amen.